I love Greek mythology. Anybody else fan of like the myths? Yeah. So there's like there's this these the character of the sirens in Greek mythology. This like recurring characters. The sirens are these these beings that they're actually pretty ugly in reality, but they sing this song. And whoever hears their song, like when men hear this song, it makes the sirens look like the most desirable women on the face of the earth. And the sirens, for some reason, they, they, they want to bring as many um, seafaring men to their death as possible. So they sing, they sing these songs when like a ship is approaching, and then men, the men like turn the ship around toward the sirens so they'll crash into the rocks and die. That's the sirens. The sirens want you to crash into the rocks and die. And the, there's the, this, uh, this question of like, how do you deal with the sirens in Greek mythology? There's like multiple approaches. The first is Odysseus's approach from the Odyssey. Do you remember that? And like maybe sophomore year of high school or something like that. What did, what did Odysseus do to solve the problem of the sirens? Anybody want to shout it out? Yeah, he did it because he, he wanted to still hear it. But what did he do for his crew so the crew would not be affected by the sirens? He put beeswax in their ears so he, to block out the song of the sirens. So they wouldn't hear they wouldn't hear the song of the sirens and they wouldn't be tempted to go in that direction. That was a wrong way that leads to death. And it kind of worked, right, for that. That was Odysseus's way. But there's another character called Orpheus. And the problem of the sirens was solved in a different way by Orpheus. He, Orpheus plays the lyre, and he's brought onto the ship so that when they pass the sirens, Orpheus plays his lyre, and he plays it so beautifully. Like, he's this incredible musician. And the sound that he's able to produce with his voice and his fingers, it's so captivating, it's so beautiful and so true that all the people on the ship can't help but listen to that song. And that's the directive, is to listen more to Orpheus's song to drown out the music of the sirens. Listen to the song that's more beautiful. I wonder if the way to avoid the sirens, if there's more for us, there's a better way than just beeswax in the ears, but an invitation to enter more deeply, to listen more deeply into the song that is true, into the song that is beautiful. Have you ever felt your heart stirred by music? Have you ever heard, felt your heart stirred by music? Like, I don't know, you're watching a, a movie, and there's like a, a certain song like at the end of the movie, like... Breakfast Club, and there's like, yeah, like the, the closing credits. You're like, yes, this is it, and then like it like makes the movie for you. Or like, any if you like musicals, I, I love musicals and stuff like that. So there's, there's really meaningful songs. Have you been listening to the radio, and you're just driving like to Publix or something, and then you're listening to the song, and all of a sudden you're crying in the middle of your car, and you so you don't even know if somebody asks you like, why are you crying? Like I don't even know. I don't. I can't. Explain. It's just the song, right? I once went with like three of my close college buddies to Callaway Gardens, and it's like three—it's like three hours south of here. So this like manly trip to the Callaway Gardens. 
But it was it was actually really awesome. And at the end of it, we went to we went to mass, this vigil mass. Like we were we weren't actually going to go to mass. I think we just wanted to pop in and see the church. And someone was playing the violin and the cello. And as we entered into this space, I felt in my heart like suddenly like everything stopped, and there was this like tangible peace. And I, I just like was engrossed in the music of like the talent of these people playing the cello and the violin, and like I couldn't, I, like I, I couldn't explain it. We walked out of there. We didn't stay the whole mass. And these three men walked out of this church, and we were silent for like ten minutes. None of us spoke, and I didn't realize like it had affected them the same way it affected me. I, I'll never forget that. Like I still, when I think about it, that like there's a mystery in that. There was there was something in that music. Have you ever felt your heart stirred by music? What is it? What is it about music? All right, I, I would like. To, uh, I'm just. I, I don't do like fake and surface stuff. I need people like to be real. So I, I think we need to like break the ice a little bit. So I'd like like maybe two volunteers, brave volunteers, to come up and do a little demonstration with me for a second. Can we can we do that? Come on up. All right. Maybe let's get a guy and a girl. Let's All right, a girl. let's go. You know what? You can come too. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I need a lady too. Yeah, I can come. Okay, so uh, tell tell me your names and a fun one fun fact about yourselves. I'm KJ and I work for the Braves. Um, I'm Michelle and I'm Cuban. Uh, my name's Devin and I'm an usher. All right, give them all round of applause. Okay, so thank you for, for volunteering. What, I, what I'd like to ask you to do is, uh, again, there's no, there's no judgment here. We're going to receive this completely well. But the first song that comes to mind, sing any song, just the first, uh, just the first few, like few words, like just a lady, like like five seconds, ten seconds of a song. It could be right in the middle of the song, but I want you to sing any song for us. No, 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 no. <laughs> any song for us, okay? Um, just because I won't, I won't throw any of the bus alone, I'll, I'll do it too, right? You are my fire, my one desire. Believe when I say I want it that way. I'm not in the musical, don't worry. It's <laughs> And y'all are gonna love whatever he has, right? Yeah. Sing it so well, it's gonna be great. So there's no, there's no worries. We're not gonna point and laugh. Any, any song. I'm sorry in advance. Oops, I did it again. Very good. Keep 
Wake me up. Wake me up and save me now. I don't remember the words. Well, aren't you glad you didn't say? Yeah, sure, I'll volunteer to join Martin. Um, it kind of though proved like the exercise worked perfectly. Because like, was it difficult at all for them to say like a fun fact about themselves? Not really, right? They all did that without hesitating. But when I asked them to sing, you know, whether or not like you're really talented or not, that was more difficult. Why? And I think maybe all, even if you weren't up there, it's like someone was sitting here and just like so embarrassed for them. Like you're, 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 you're still, your heart is still going like this right now. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't know you're going to this type of talk or this type of thing could possibly happen. And I'm in the vicinity. I, I would propose this, that music is vulnerable because singing is the language of the heart. Like you can't fake that stuff with a nice surface glaze, like singing kind of expresses the reality of where our hearts are at. And maybe that's why music affects us so much, because so often we suffer from the danger of being disconnected from our own hearts. It's so easy to do that. In the world of text messages and all like alerts every now and then, we can go through our whole day doing this and that. We can enter into all these friendships and relationships and never once be connected to what our heart is actually singing or saying. We need help to get reconnected to our hearts. And art, beauty, music has this special ability, always has this ability to bring us back to ourselves. St. Augustine speaks about in his search for the Lord, he says, you were within me, but I was outside. And it was there I was searching for you. I was searching for you everywhere, but you were within. The invitation is to go within. I was watching recently 13 going on 30. And I had a spiritual experience with 13 going on 30. I'm serious. I, the last time I think I watched that movie was like with my girlfriend's sophomore year of high school. And just see, there's like something is happening in the movie and I'm getting like memories of that. And it stirred up, being real, it stirred up feelings in my heart that I forgot, like I was capable of feeling. Aspirations, dreams of this like high love that I had when I was like a, a little kid. And it was pain, it was so painful to feel that long. It was so painful to feel that, especially as an adult, because it's like, I don't, I don't know if this, this thing that I find within myself can even be realized. Dang, this, this poverty to feel an ache so deep that I can do absolutely nothing about on my own. Music brings us to our hearts and in our hearts, we find an ache. We find a poverty. We find a longing for more. Mary is the one who entered deeply into the ache of her own heart, who listened well to her own heart, pondering so many things in her heart, and opened her heart, listening her, to her ears to the love song that God was singing to her. And she let that transform her whole life. This is the invitation for all of us. 
to hear God's love song for us and to become captured and captivated by it. Um, it's, it is interesting, though, as I was saying before, how like a certain song like kind of makes a movie or something like that. Like, can you can you imagine Top Gun without Danger Zone? Like what? Like what was that like Top Gun movie like of just like Tom Cruise going up in a plane and it was like raindrops keep falling. On the director, like, I don't know. I don't know if this is gonna work. Like, I don't but you put Danger Zone in there, like, yes, it all makes sense. Like, I get what this movie is about now. I thought this was a bad movie before, but now with this song, it brings everything to life and connects it. What if our faith is the same way? Okay, another cool exercise. Don't worry, no no volunteers. If you've heard this before, don't spoil it. I'm going to read to you a phrase of words. All right? And I want you to, at the end of this, tell me what I'm talking about. Like, that's the simple task. What am I talking about after I finish reading? Here we go. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. All right, what am I talking about? Gibberish. Gibberish. Yeah, the first time I heard that, that's what I kind of got to, right? Like, and maybe there's like some things that makes kind of some sense here of just like, okay, yeah, I guess rain soaking in very fast to something kind of makes sense, but like, it just seems like a bunch of disconnected ideas, right? And we would just be tempted to take what I just read and say, Gibberish. Nonsense. And the only reason, though, that we would feel that way is because we lacked the proper frame to understand this. This is the power of having the right frame for something. The key to understand and unlock the deeper meaning of something. I'm going to give you that key right now. You ready? It's one word. Here we go. Kite. Let me read this gibberish again. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Once successful, complications are minimal. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. Too many people doing the same thing can cause lots, can also cause problems. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor if things break loose from it. However, you will not get a second chance. Says gibberish now. Amazing, isn't it? How one word, 
how one key, how the proper frame could make something gibberish, something indecipherable, suddenly decipherable. What if, I don't know, a lot, a lot of us, whether, whether you've grown up in the Catholic Church or, or you're not, you weren't born Catholic, you're just here tonight, welcome, so glad you're here. I think a lot of us, my experience growing up, I like I knew like little things about the church teaches, and I, they were kind of all for, for a long time, for many years for me, just like lines in this thing, where like, I, I understand that one line, but I didn't see how anything got connected. I didn't see how any of this, like, uh, like women can't be priests, and they've got this Eucharist, and all this, like, eat Lent, and no meat on Fridays, like, all these, like, weird things, this disjointed teachings that aren't really connected anyway. But then when I was presented with the frame of Christianity, the proper frame to understand it, suddenly everything made sense. Everything made sense. In a way it didn't before, in a way that's like, oh my gosh, this was this this was there the whole time. Like this didn't change. Like our understanding kind of changed, right? But this was there. What if the faith is possibly tremendously more beautiful than you or I have dared to even realize up to this point in your life? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that kind of scary? Change the way we live. What is the frame for Christianity? What is the frame to understand it? I will propose this. Christopher West proposes this. Desire for nuptial union. Nuptial is a word for the type of union spouses have, man and woman, and marriage. Desire for nuptial union. Is the frame to understand Christianity? We might be scandalized by such a notion, right? How does that make any sense? How does this desire that I find within myself, this longing, this ache for union and love, what does that have anything to do? Maybe our experience has taught us that this is, is not a place for anything that happens in church. The desires, the longings, the feelings that I have, uh, that you deal with that on your own, right? All that human stuff, we, we talk about holy stuff in here. Well, except for the fact that the Word became flesh and the Son of God entered deeply into our humanity. I was outside, but you were within. That's where we find the Lord always, in our humanity. If, if Danger Zone is the theme song for Top Gun, what's the theme song for Christianity? What's the theme song for Catholicism, I'm proposing to you the theme song is the Song of Songs, a song that is all about desire for nuptial union. If you don't know the Song of Songs, hey, that's cool that you came to this talk, and it's all about the Song of Songs. Uh, the Song of Songs you will find in the smack middle of the Bible. It is a boldly erotic love dialogue duet between bride and bridegroom expressing their longing for one another, their desire for union. It's, it's in the very center. If, if the Bible has two bookends, so to speak, what's the first book in the Bible? Genesis. What's the last book in the Bible? The Bible opens with a marriage. Did you ever notice that? The Bible opens with the marriage of man and woman, nuptial union. The Bible ends in the book of Revelation with another marriage. 
You may not know that one, but it's there nonetheless. The big finale of the Bible is the marriage of Christ and the church, the church which is us, his bride. Fellas, I know that can be weird for us. I'll maybe talk about that later. It's not weird, trust me. The Bible opens with a marriage and ends with a marriage. And smack dab in the middle, the heart of the scriptures, so to speak, is the Song of Songs. Pope Benedict, get ready for this. You holding your, like, fasten your seatbelts. Pope Benedict calls the Song of Songs this erotic love dialogue. They, they are not shy on the language. The first, I have some quotes, right? Um, this is, the, yeah, the first words of the Song of Songs. This is scripture. Go ahead tonight, read it. It's the bride saying, let him kiss me with the kisses of mine. This is, this is what, it's, what it means to be Catholic. The bride saying, let him kiss me with the kiss of my mouth, right? Okay, this boldly erotic love song, sensational. Pope Benedict, you know Pope Benedict, right? He calls this the essence of biblical faith. <laughs> what? The essence of biblical faith. Here's the Bible in five words. God wants to marry us. God wants to marry us. God wants to draw us into a deep, intimate union with himself. Permanent union, an everlasting, an eternal union, and fill us with his life. Jesus says, I came, to, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. This is what we're made for. This is what marriage at its best is only a little glimmer of that, the deeper reality that it points us to. And that's why the song is so important to talk about. John Paul II reflected on these kind of musings that I've been sharing with you tonight. They've come to be known as the theology of the body. Over the span of five or so years, 1979 to 1984, John Paul II, when he was Pope, delivered a series of Wednesday audiences reflecting on this great mystery of man and woman that call for two to become one flesh and how it has to do with this, this ache in our hearts and our, our destiny in Christ and all that good stuff. And he delivered 129 of these audiences. But later, this is why tonight is really special, because later they found that there were a few audiences that were undelivered, hidden. And they found these manuscripts from John Paul II, and due to their content, uh, that they would be probably misinterpreted by the many. When, when, he, when he presented in the public square, no one had a clue what he was talking about. Right? He just he, Normally just people, like he says some nice words, the Pope says some encouraging things, but he's going into this in deep theological reflection about masculinity and femininity, and everyone there is just like nodding. And when asked about it, like, why are you doing this? John Paul II, he said, oh, they just come for the show, right? I'm doing this for the next generation, because they're going to need it. That's us. Uh, these hidden talks focus primarily on what we're here to talk about tonight, the Song of Songs. Uh, to enter into this is extremely exciting. 
I hope you got one of these quotes. Um, let's go ahead and <clears throat> what we're going to be breaking these down. But that's what we're going to be basically exploring tonight is how this, how John Paul II's reflection on this biblical book of scripture connects with your life and my life, connects with the faith that we're trying to live out, connects with the, the deepest longings of our hearts. The first thing to speak of is that John Paul II deliberately says at the very beginning that human love is a theme unto itself. That sure, I've already mentioned this already, that it falls into this great analogy. We, we see these two lovers, bride and bridegroom, and oh, great, that's like Christ and the church. But he's like, wait, don't move so fast. Human, like this sacred, holy book of scripture is holy for human love in itself. As a theme in itself. Without the jump into the analogy. Read, this is B that I'm reading. This is a footnote that John Paul II puts in his work. It's not, these, this text is not from him, but he's, he's putting this in his work. He says, some readers of the Song of Songs have jumped immediately to reading a disincarnate love into its words. They have forgotten the lovers or have petrified them into pretense, into an intellectual key. They have multiplied the most minute allegorical correspondences in every sentence, word, or image. This is not the right way. This is the important part. Ready? He who does not believe in the human love of the spouses, he who must ask forgiveness for the body, does not have the right to rise higher with the affirmation of human love by contrast. It is possible to discover the revelation of God in it. So we don't, again, we don't want to skip over the human. And there's a temptation to do this, especially if in our hearts we carry around a suspicion toward our humanity, toward our desires and our sexuality. Even if we're a very religious person, this sometimes is a breeding ground for that, that areas of deep internal judgments that we have toward our own bodies, toward the bodies of others, and toward our own desires. And what we really believe eventually comes out. The truth of our Christianity has told us to go deep into our masculinity and femininity and find, find God's original plan there, find, find the sign of holiness there. Right? It is actually the enemy who wants to take us away from that. If he can't get us to buy into the lies of our culture and the ways they're doing, he would be equally happy, if not more happy, with us holding this contempt toward all things bodily and sexual and calling that purity. True purity is an opening of our bodies and this integration of the person. That's what the Catechism calls the virtue of chastity, this successful integration of sexuality within the person. We're not afraid of our desires. We're, we're taking them to the Lord. We're, we're dealing with them in a human way, and we're also in a, in a way of prayer. The body, this is what he says on C. Ready? C on your quotes. Both the femininity of the bride and the masculinity of the bridegroom speak without words. The language of the body is a language without words. 
just to check in with y'all. Are y'all doing okay? Are y'all in like, are y'all go like 20 minutes ago gone? <laughs> you, you, you tracking with me? If you're not, you need like scream or something. Like I need to know where you're at. We want to go together on this. We don't want to go too fast. The body is a language without words. What does that mean? A man's body is speaking a language without words. A woman's body is speaking a language without words. John Paul II begins his reflections of this whole thing that we're talking about, even before he gets to talking about the Song of Songs, saying if you want to understand our humanity, you have to go to the very beginning. The way God made us male and female before sin in the garden. And only then can we kind of understand what it means to be human. For the body, when, when Adam sees Eve's body, there, there's a language that he's reading and understands. The fall hasn't happened yet, and so he's able to see her and receive her in the purity of his heart so that her body reveals the whole person that she is. Some, an interviewer asked me recently, can you just explain the theology of the body in a sentence or two? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but this is what I would say. Theology of the body is the teaching from John Paul II that the body reveals the person. And in so much that it reveals the person made in the image of God, it reveals and is capable of revealing divine mysteries. That's the theology of the body, Charlie Brown. Uh, let's read what it says in D. What is What was barely expressed in the second chapter of Genesis in just a few simple and essential words is developed here in the Song of Songs in full dialogue, or rather duet, in which the bridegroom's words are interwoven with the bride's, and they complete each other. On seeing the woman created by God, man's first words express wonder and admiration. So when Adam says, at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, like he's seen, he's seen many other bodies before, like flamingo and chimpanzee and stuff. But like at last, a body that reveals a person, a person whom I can love. At last, what wonder? This, this simple, that simple phrase, what we see in Genesis, what we just read, the whole Song of Songs, it's like that phrase, is, that moment is drawn out in full dialogue. And the poverty of what we see with Adam and Eve we see the richness in the Song of Songs. This allows uh, this allows Adam and Eve to be aware in reading the language of their bodies, they realize the call to self-gift. That's what the body is capable of speaking, the invitation, the calling to give myself completely, all of myself, body, soul, heart, everything, over to another and to fulfill my existence in doing so. And this is why the Song of Songs, they sing so much of being set as a seal, because the self-gift leads to a certain permanence, a seal, a vow, that I'm going to be there no matter what, that I'm going to give my whole life over you. I'm really excited to be directing the summer 
uh, a musical that really gets to the heart of the story of our creation. It is a musical retelling of Adam and Eve. Tonight, you have some stars in the room tonight. You're going to be singing another song. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to make any more uh, unwilling volunteers, but we do have um, some of the leads of Garden, the musical, here tonight to share with you a song from the show. And it's really expressing that idea of that um, see, reading in the language of their bodies, their call to make a gift to themselves, and the permanence of that, the, what, it, what it looks like. And I invite you, as you, as you watch this and you listen to this, not to just perceive what's going on in a really intellectual, heady way. I mean, there's value in that, too. But to really let your guard down and let your heart listen to this. And maybe it's kind of painful to hear, like it was for me watching 13 going on 30. <laughs> maybe it's bringing up desires in there that you're, you're afraid to feel because, oh, I don't have someone in my life to sing this love song with right now. Feel that. You do have someone. That's the good news of this talk. But you need to feel the ache first before I can give you the good news. Um, so yeah, I want to invite Vanessa and Steven to come up here now.
Check this out. First and foremost, you can see, you can read the quote in your own time that the quotas have. In the Song of Songs, there's this repeated phrase of my sister, my bride, from the bridegroom. Right? He's speaking to he's speaking to his love like that. But that's a very unusual thing to say to the girl that you're like in love with, right? You're like you're like my sister. <laughs> Like, a, a lady's, like, swooning when you hear that. Have you ever heard that? And in the moonlight, like, your boyfriend tell you that. Uh, this is actually a really beautiful thing, though. Maybe we should. Maybe we should read it. Through the Appalachian... This is F. Through the Appalachian sister, the bridegroom's words in the Song of Songs tend to reproduce the history of the femininity of the beloved person. They see her still in the time of girlhood, and by means of this vision go, that goes back to the past, these words embrace her entire eye, soul and body, with a disinterested tenderness. From here arises the peace that the bride speaks of. When Adam and Eve are looking into each other's eyes, they have something called the peace of the interior gaze. There's a peace because there's no, there's no threat in their hearts of being an object of use for the other. And they can kind of let their guard down. They can be naked. They can be naked and, and experience the being seen, experience the gift of the other. Right? That's what comes with this kind of maturity if we're exploring a vocation. That's like that's where we want to get to at a certain point. I mentioned with the guy, like if the guys are having a hard time with this right now, like okay, all this lovey dovey stuff 
then I'm supposed to be thinking of, yeah, I guess I could think about like marriage and stuff, but like when you get to spiritual, I'm supposed to be thinking of like Jesus Christ in a romantic way, like what's up with that, right? I think it's helpful whenever, Jen, when we get to that spot, is to look at look at the man, Jesus Christ, his own interaction and his posture with the Father is how we we our hearts need to be. There's this kind of receptivity in his own heart. He said, I only ever do what I see the Father doing. It's the submission and it's the sense of being clobbered with the love of the Father always. And that speaks very much if we're in touch with it, with the desires of our masculine heart. I promised to make a statement on that, so I wanted to say a little bit. Okay, check this out on G. We're not going to read all these quotes. Relax. But this one's really important. He says that the bride presents herself to the eyes of the man as master of her own mystery. Ladies, if you do not know John Paul II, he is the biggest fan of women, like, ever. Read what he has to say. Read, read his letter to women. Read stuff like this. He has, he has such a profound reverence for femininity. For a woman's heart, and if you if you look at what he actually says, like it, the truth comes out, he calls woman master of her own mystery in the Song of Songs. The temptation, always, as we enter into relationships, um, it's much it's much easier to manipulate someone. It's much easier to manipulate someone into surrendering a key, and call that a relationship. I think, and I think, if I'm honest in, a, in my own heart, I see that. And I, and I think, listening to my sisters in Christ, there's almost a desire to be manipulated sometimes, just because it's it's almost close to the real thing, even though I know it's not what I want. I was speaking to a group of in this really big tent, like a group of like 200 confirmation high school boys that didn't want to be there, and so I started this the talk of, of just like proposing the scenario of like, all right, you just went you just went on a date with this girl and you're driving her back to her house and like her, like her parents aren't home. And all the, all the guys are like, yeah! <laughs> like, they're, getting, they're getting so excited. And I'm like, she, she asks if you want to come inside, and they're just like freak out. Yeah, like let's go. They're like standing up in the chairs and everything. Um, you walk her to the door, and they're going crazy. Um, and you say good night, and you go home. And they're like, man, what the heck, man? That's that's terrible. Um, and it's, it's like they're like, I'm like, what? What's, what's what's wrong with that? It's like you you messed up the whole thing. And the whole point. Of talking to that was after I, after that kind of episode happened, I said, "Listen, gentlemen, I know that you are extremely smart, and I know that you have the capacity to figure out a way how to manipulate a woman to get her to do anything you want. But I'm inviting you to use that strength to to actually build her up in her dignity. That same strength that you know you possess and the capacity, I'm asking you to use that for good." You couldn't hear, like you, you could hear a pin drop suddenly. It shifted. They recognize this power in their hearts for something. 
this desire for greatness. The true test of a man is even and almost most especially when a woman does not know her own dignity, that a man upholds it, sings it to her, proclaims it. This is all that we can do, gentlemen, is what John Paul II is saying, is that we must reverently, intentionally knock and wait for the woman to open up her mystery, to let us inside. Can't manipulate her to surrendering the key. And why this sucks is because she might not let you in. And so you have to put yourself out there. And there's no like, oh, well, I didn't really mean it. I just kind of want to hang out. Uh, there's, it's only real. And there's the risk of actual rejection. But ladies, you are worth that risk. Don't ever settle for anything less. The man must learn, John Paul II says, the inviolability of the woman. How do I enter into the mystery without violating the mystery? And the woman must learn entrustment. A healthy, appropriate entrustment for the, the level of the relationship, but an entrustment nonetheless. That she's a closed garden, a fountain sealed. To open, to open her garden to the man. This is where it gets to the heart of our own spiritual life. That the, the main focal point in our own prayer is learning to open our hearts to the Lord. Everything that I just said about guys applies to the Lord's relationship with us. He has knocked. Very clear. But he will never manipulate us into surrendering the key. He longs for us to open our garden to him, that we might have a deeper relationship with him. If you got a relationship with him now, he wants to go deeper. Uh, John Paul II uses another theme of scripture to make sense of the Song of Songs, because the Song of Songs to be so floaty and beautiful. It's like everything is great. There's no conflict in the Song of Songs. There's no, there's no threat of, of real conflict. Um, but he kind of uses another passage in scripture to kind of bring about the reality of the world that you and I live in that does have conflict, the threat of death, the threat of not being seen in the right way and all that stuff. It's a scripture passage. It's probably one of my favorites in all the scripture, and it's astonishing how, how few people know about it. It's from the book of Tobit. Tobit is one of the seven deuterocanonical books. It's scriptures that Catholics recognize that not our Protestant brothers, not all of them recognize. Um, and in it, in the book of Tobit contains like maybe the best love story ever. And I'm just going to articulate that to you briefly. So Sarah is, um, Sarah's this, this Jewish, that's not Sarah. That's Sarah. So Sarah is this, um, this Jewish girl. She's exiled in the, uh, in the land of Media, which is outside of Nineveh and Assyria, and this she's a uh, she's go she's so excited because it's her wedding day. It's beautiful. She's got a nice like white gown. It's great. Her maidservants are all excited for her, singing about how great this is going to be. Uh, the guys are really cute. They're so in love. 
they go have a ceremony, they get married, everybody they're taking pictures and their iPhones, it's great. Uh, and it's like, to, tonight is the night where they consummate the marriage. And so they bring, the, the she brings them into the bridal chamber, they're about to consummate the marriage, and as her new uh, husband, her new bridegroom, approaches her, he dies. And that's the end of the story. No. <laughs> he just, he dies. He just drops dead completely. Like, talk about bad luck. Really bad luck, right? Um, she's crying, and the, maybe her, her father said, no, this is, this is a really bad day, but it's okay, don't worry, well, I'll find you another bridegroom. And, like, sometimes goes by, and, like, yeah, like, they, she has healing and whatever, and, and she's, she's got a new boyfriend, and they're engaged, and yes, now it's the day of their wedding, and they, they get married. Finally, it's like some redemption of that, that awful blip in the radar. And she takes her new bridegroom into the bridal chamber where they're going to consummate the marriage, and as he approaches to give a passionate kiss, he drops dead again. Bad luck to the extreme. Sarah gets married seven times to seven different men. And all seven of them, as they approach her on their wedding night, they're already, they are married. But as they approach her on their wedding night, they fall flat dead. This is, I think we even had this reading recently. That's why I think the Holy Spirit told me to say this. Um, What's going on here is that there's a demon called Asmodeus that has binded himself to Sarah for some reason. And he's killing these men before they can have intercourse with her. And so Sarah is in such despair that she wants to kill her, so she tries to kill herself, but ends up praying instead a prayer for God to save her and take her life. God hears her prayer. Meanwhile, over here, young strapping lad Tobias is on a journey with his dog to the land of Media from Nineveh, and he's met by the archangel Raphael in disguise. And Raphael begins to describe and recount Sarah to him. <laughs> John Paul II said very, very wisely that Tobias had reason to be afraid. <laughs> yeah, no, what? No, no kidding. But as the archangel is describing Sarah to Tobias, it says in the scripture that his heart became set on her. And I go back and forth with this personally, but what it says in the book of Tobit is that she is your destiny. You are her destiny, and you'll save her. He uses the word destiny for the spousal love of these people. So Tobias goes and meets meets Sarah and her dad and asks for her hand. And her dad's like, oh, I'm not sure if you want to do this. He's like, no, I'm, I'm sure I want to do this. <laughs> On the night of their wedding, they get married. On the night of their wedding, Tobias's father-in-law, Sarah's dad, is outside literally digging Tobias's grave. <laughs> this is how much confidence he has. Raphael, the archangel, though, is giving him a little bit more encouragement. He gives him some instructions. Uh, and he says, like, when you when you get, before you approach her, you need to do something different than all these other bridegrooms. 
And so he burns some incense and stuff. And when they enter the bridal chamber together, before they come together at all, the first thing Tobias says is says, Sarah, let's get on our knees and pray and ask the Lord for mercy. And Tobias prays this epic prayer that is found on the back of your sheet. Blessed are you, O God of our fathers, and blessed for all generations is your name. Let the heavens and the whole creation bless you for all ages. You created Adam, and you created his wife Eve to be a help and support for him. From the two of them, the whole human race is born. You said it was not good that the man should be alone. Let us make him a help similar to himself. Now it is not out of lust that I take this sister of mine, but with rightness of intention. Grant that she and I may find mercy and that we may grow old together. And they both said, Amen. Amen. As Tobias and Sarah are on their knees in their bedroom praying, there is this battle between the archangel Raphael and Asmodeus the demon. And Raphael is whooping his butt and sending him into the wilderness. In the morning, Sarah's dad checks in the bedroom, assuming the worst, hearing the worst, and sees Tobias' arm around Sarah, and sleeping soundly. He lives! <laughs> She's actually married! Hooray! Glorious! Glorious, right? There is a demon that wants to write lust and death onto the marriage bed. When the Lord is trying to write love and life, this is a reality. This is a reality. Lust, if you're familiar, unfamiliar with that word, does not equal sexual desire as we understand it as Catholics, but actually a perversion of sexual desire. Where Adam and Eve had the desire to give themselves over to one another, that was their sexual desire, which God created sex, right? Lust is, is this, how, this kind of possessive desire to use one another as an object for one's own selfish gain. True, true authentic love is always concerned with a self-gift and a concern for the other, right? Tobias praised that. Did you notice that in the prayer? He's, he makes this distinction that I'm not taking this sister of mine. He says it again right there, just like the song of songs. My sister, my bride. Not taking this sister out of lust, but for a noble purpose with sincerity. Look at what John Paul II has to say about this. H at the top of the back page. Thus, from the very first moment, Tobias's love had to face the test of life or death. The words about love, strong as death, spoken by the spouses of the Song of Songs and the transport of their hearts, here take on the character of a real test. Tobias and Sarah with him go without hesitating toward this test. But in this test, life has the victory because during the test of the wedding night, Love is revealed as stronger than death. Look at the world in which we, we live today. Do we believe that? Do we believe that there is a love that's actually stronger than death? The Lord is the one who conquered death itself. He rose from through death. 
he destroyed death and defeated it forever. So that we may open up the, the garden of our hearts to him completely. That we would be honest with him completely. I was reflecting about how, like, you know how, like, when you get in a fight with someone, a family member or something, and there's always, like, some, like, one person, to all, all you want them to do is just be honest to where they messed up. But sometimes just where a person's at, like, they get so defensive and guarded, and they start gaslighting you, and you're just like, I don't, like, it's, it's, it's okay for you to make a mistake. Like, I'm going to love you. But I just need you to be honest, like for our relationship, that you screwed up here and you hurt me. That's all I want. But this person, like you've got to realize where they're at, like this person is doesn't believe in, that they're worthy of love in that mistake. And so they'll do anything to rationalize their behavior, won't they? But that's us. See, we can't even be honest with ourselves, much less with God, until we know that he's loved us completely. That his love has been revealed. You can't kind of see this, but the cross. It's only in that security of realizing how much we're loved that we can find the safety to kind of let our guard down and look at like how I messed up. Right? The Lord wants us to sing the song of songs. And when we hear God's love song, we sing it in tune. In our relationships with others, romantic relationships, sure, but just in general, in all our reactions with everyone else, in the prayer of our own hearts with the Lord, it produces life. It produces life in our hearts. It overflows into a fruitfulness into this world. When we sing out of tune of the love that we were made for, the fruit is death. Romans 7 says the wages of sin are death. The wages of lust or death, the wages of counterfeit love that kind of seems like the real thing and temporarily fills me, even though I know it's not quite right. The wages of this are death. And many of us have felt the taste of that lingering in our mouths, even right now. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. Because God is capable of taking the notes that we have sung off-key He's capable of transposing the whole symphony so those notes become in the right key in your life and in mine. Do not be afraid of your mistakes. Do not be afraid of the worst and stupidest things you've done. Ways that you have totally run away from love. Ways that you've rejected love. Ways you've you've run into something and got it totally wrong. You didn't even know you were biting into the lie until it's too late. Don't be afraid. Open totally everything that's in our hearts, everything that's in our past to the Lord. And he can take even those wrong notes and make them sound right in the song. He can redeem all things. Last thing will be to trust in the promises that the Lord has made for made to us. That is that his answer to us is always yes. That the Lord is saying to us just as we saw Adam singing and making a promise to Eve that like, hey, I'm with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm singing to you. I'm singing over you. No matter what happens, your feelings change. My feelings change. It doesn't matter. I'm here with you. I'm in this. The Lord has 
much to sing to us if we're willing to hear. I will, I will close with this. I, when, growing up, this is embarrassing. Growing up, I, uh, whenever I have like a different crush on a girl, like whatever song I'm listening to at the time, I would like make that that theme song for that particular girl, right? So be like, oh yeah, that's this song. This is Courtney's. This this, <laughs> this is Courtney's song, right? And I was doing that like years years and years ago, and I was like about to do that with whatever girl I liked at the time. But I felt the Lord saying to me like, um, hey Joey, that's an interesting thing you do there. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe this song though. Why don't you like instead of associating that song with it? that girl you like, associate with me. And then every time you hear that song, just be reminded of my love for you and your love for me. I said, okay, I guess I'll sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice. Um, and I'll give that song to the Lord. Years, years go by. I'm at my sales job out of college, my first couple years out of college. And I'm, I'm just so miserable. I'm working for us big company making tons and tons of money and just feeling dead inside. Totally dead. Feeling my heart dying. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about it. I've been working so hard to impress all these senior engineers that I'm capable, that I'm an adult, and I'm in my suit, and I'm just in a conference room for eight hours. I've been yelled at and treated terribly, and I'm walking in the parking lot, which um, my car is right in like the main center where you can see all the, the engineers and executives walking very to and fro my customer. I'm like smacked out there and I, I'm just just feeling so defeated and I get in my car just wanting to go home and I turn on the car and the music starts playing and guess what song starts playing? And there's this panic that kind of takes over my heart of like, oh gosh. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Part of me wants to turn this off. Part of me wants to drive out of the parking lot as fast as I can and not kind of enter into that. And I start, I start feeling the invitation from the Lord to, to to listen to this. And I'm arguing with God in my head. I'm like, I don't, I, I can't do this right now. I cannot do this right now. Do you see where we are? Like they will see me. They will, all of them. We'll see me, what's going on right here. Like, I'm in a horrible place. I'm seriously in a horrible place. They're going to see. And I felt the Lord speak to me in that moment, saying, I don't care what any of these people think of you. I am not ashamed of you. Sit here and let me sing to you. And I did. I just kind of let my guard down and just broke down in the middle of the parking lot, snot everywhere, like gross. But it didn't matter because I knew that the Lord was singing over me and my heart was at peace. My heart, my heart was, I could feel my heart again and it was being sung to by the one my heart was made for. The Lord wants to sing to you. The Lord wants to teach you the frame, the theme song to this whole faith that you've grown up your whole life. He wants to take you deeper. So Lord, we allow you to, in this very moment even, to sing to us.
we allow you to speak our true name. We repent of our unbelief. We repent of mistakes in our past, but also say amen and hallelujah that you are bigger than our mistakes, that you're calling us to intimacy and relationship with you and to fullness of life. Help us to sing the song that we were made for. Help our hearts to sing again. Mary, you who did this most perfectly, that you actually conceived divine life in your womb, teach us how. Teach us how to hear God's love song and respond to it, to live in the love that we were created for. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Father, Son, so we got some time for small group. Now there's some questions on your table. Um, there's some books over there. That's a book I wrote with Brian Butler of Echo Community. Um, it's $10. You can put the $10 in that box underneath. I forgot my donations. A little fancy thing. If you don't have it, just take a book. I'd rather you just take the book. Um, and then there's some flyers for Garden Musical, which is happening at the end of July, first weekend of August. Um, I don't know. I guess now, now they can tell us when the smaller time is done. Cool. So break at your tables whenever you're ready.